Well, we finished 11 chapters of Jeremiah. Um, so we're into the book. Um, this is just a review of our uh, timeline here. One thing I, I should mention, and it, this will come up in this morning's lesson, is that uh, the chapters in Jeremiah have not been put together in chronological order. Now, in a rough way, they are. Certainly the last few chapters of the of the book are at the end of, of the story in, in time order. But here in these early chapters, you're going to find things that are, are really out of order. Sometimes you'll find something in the, in the reign of Zedekiah here. He's the last of the kings. Other times it'll be Jehoiakim or Jehoiakim. Um, I don't recall anything that happens in the time of Josiah, even though um, he, he did prophesy during the time of Josiah. But the, the more serious warnings are obviously coming after that. Um, the one topic that is... It, the, the book is just permeated with is the topic of the wrath of God. Um, now, we understand there's other places to talk about the love of God, um, but this book is about the wrath of God. And it's an important subject for us to understand. Um, I know there are there have been believers down through the ages who have been um, very troubled by the concept of hell, an eternal hell, with the, with terrible descriptions like what Jesus gives it. And I would suggest the book of Jeremiah would be one that people should consider when they consider that subject because um, Jeremiah gives us an actual physical representation of what happens when God is angry to the point of of no return? When the people have just um, sinned beyond any redemption, and it's a very sad picture. Poor, poor Jeremiah. And this, I mentioned last week that um, Jeremiah is a little bit unusual among all the prophets, and that you get you get to know him as a person much more than any of the others. And what? How do you? What do you think about him? How do you feel toward him in the reading we did this morning? Well, he does have his complaints. He, his, he, he, uh, he objects to the injustice of the, the burdens, yeah, the persecutions of him. Yeah. Now another question: Do you blame him? <laughs> I don't. <laughs> um, he just. He really went through a lot. Uh, just really went through a lot um, to, to to obey God, and and you just you. Uh, I mean, there's other prophets that went through a lot. Um, uh, we'll see. We'll be covering others as we go along, and you'll and you'll read about them. And you think, man, that's pretty rough. But you don't get to know what they thought about it. Jeremiah lets you know what he thinks about it. And I find it very helpful. I think it's um, it's encouraging. I think it's very encouraging to us if we, as we struggle with faith and struggle with obedience to God 
to realize that a, a man as great as Jeremiah had those very same struggles. And he was a youth. Also. He started as a young young person, yeah, perhaps twenty, you know, somewhere you know, late teenagers, twenty. But that was back in the days of Josiah. Most of his work was done uh, decades after that. So um, God, God gave him time to get used to it, I guess. Um, it would have been a much easier job preaching these things in the days of King Josiah. Now let me just mention one more thing before we leave this chart. Josiah, was he good or bad? He was good. He was a good king. He died early in, in, in battle against Pharaoh. And three of his kings, uh, three of his sons were king, and one grandson. Uh, Jehoahaz was the first son who was king. He reigned, I think, about three months. Jehoiakim was another son, reigned um, quite a few years here. Um, Jehoiakim was grandson. He was Jehoiakim's son. He reigned three months. And then Zedekiah was again one of the sons of Josiah. He reigned, I think, 11 years. The last one. Um, none, of the, none of his sons or grandsons were good. Josiah was the last good king. Um, now, last time we looked at this map um, of what happened when, uh, when Babylon took over. Who, what was the big empire before Babylon? Syria. Assyria. And they covered an area almost almost this size. Um, and Babylon took over and did the whole thing. Um, and then in the uh, the outline, we, last week we did the call of Jeremiah, just one chapter. And then we got into this section called Warnings and Exhortations of Judah. We're going to be in that again this morning. And we'll be again next week. We'll finish it up next next week. All right, so warnings and exhortations of Judah, chapter 12, Jeremiah's prayer, and, and then God's answer to it. The prayer begins in, in verse 1. Righteous are you, O Lord, that, that I would plead my cause with you. Indeed, I would discuss matters of justice with you. Why has the way of the wicked prospered? Why are all those who deal in treachery at ease? Now, um, to get the context... What had happened to Jeremiah at the end of the previous chapter? His, his own people had plotted against him. Yes, and God had been the one that told him about that. And, and he sees this injustice and he's asking God, why are you putting up with this? Now at first glance, this seems like kind of a strange question because everything that he's prophesied so far is that God's not going to put up with this. But um, it's one thing to see sin in general. It's another thing to see very specific sins, especially against you yourself. And this was sin against Jeremiah. And this was done by people who should have cared about him, his own family. Um, and then verse 4. How long is the land to mourn and the vegetation of the countryside to wither? Later on we're going to read about a drought that was happening because of God's judgment. For the wickedness of those who dwell in it. Animals and birds have been snatched away because men have said, he will not see our latter ending. I mean, Jeremiah understands exactly why all this is happening, but he says, how long? You know, this, this is just terrible. And God's answer in verse 5, if you have run with footmen and they have tired you out, then how can you compete with the horses? If you fall down in the land of peace, how will you do in the thicket of the Jordan? 
What's God saying to him? How's God explaining this problem and how God's going to answer it? It's going to get harder. Yeah. You, you ain't seen nothing yet. That's basically what he's telling uh, Jeremiah. Um, wow, that's good. What an encouraging answer that is. Huh? <laughs> I'll give you something to cry about. Well, and you know, you just feel bad for Jeremiah. But what, Jeremy, what God is telling him is what he needs to hear because it is going to get worse. What he suffered from his countrymen is nothing compared to what's going to happen. And um, he says in verse 6, For even your brothers and the household of your father, even they have dealt treacherously with you. Even they have cried aloud after you. Do not believe them, although they may say nice things to you. There's nobody you can trust. It's just a terrible... And then, he, and then God says in verse 7, I have forsaken my house. I have abandoned my inheritance. I have given the beloved of my soul into the hand of her enemies. That's a help to understand why Jeremiah is going through these things. Jeremiah is entering into the experience of God. Now there's another prophet that we think especially of this a minor prophet. Can anyone think of one who really entered into the experience of God? Hosea. Because what was the experience? He married a, a prostitute. Yeah, married a woman who's going to be unfaithful to him, just like God's wife had been unfaithful to him. Who's God's wife? Israel. Israel is, yeah. And so he calls her here in verse 7, the beloved of my soul. And he's given the beloved of his soul into the hand of, of her enemies. So God, God is going, God is trying to explain to Jeremiah, how do you think I feel? You know, we're, we're both in this together. Okay. Um, then chapter thirteen uh, is titled "The Ruined Waistband." Um, verse one: The Lord said to me, "Go and buy yourself a linen waistband and put it around your waist, but do not put it in water." Um, so he did that, and then verse four. Where does God tell him to take it? To the Euphrates. To the Euphrates River. And what's he supposed to do with it? Hide it. Hide it, yeah, in a crevice of the rock. Why the Euphrates River? Well, that's where the Babylonians, the, the enemies, are Right, that's where the people are going to be taken captive. So, this waistband is going to be kind of a, a symbol for what's going to happen to the people of God. Um, so now verse 6. After many days the Lord said to me, Arise, go to the Euphrates, and take from there the waistband which I commanded you to hide there. But what did he find when he went there? It was ruined. <laughs> yeah, not a big surprise. <laughs> um, now, what's the point? Well, the waistband is being compared to uh, God's people. Because... That's right. In verse 9, um, let me see here. Just so will I destroy the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. And then verse 11, as the waistband clings to the waist of a man, so I have made the whole household of Israel and the whole household of Judah cling to me. So he wanted an article of clothing to be very close to his body to illustrate how close Judah was to God. And then he's going to show what happens to it because of this judgment. Um, then there's another symbol, which I don't have a, the title, Ruined Race Fan, I just did for the whole chapter, but actually in verse 12, he gives a new sign. 
And this one is for the people. The, the waistband was just for Jeremiah, although I'm sure he, was, he told the people since he put it in the book like this. But here's what he wants to, here's what the Lord wants him to say to Israel. Every jug is to be filled with wine. And what's going to be the people's answer to that? <laughs> yeah, well, duh. What do you think? What do you think jugs are for? But in verse 13, what is it really meaning? This is chapter 13, verse 13. It's going to fill all the rulers with drunkenness. Yes. Yeah. This isn't just pleasant wine here. He's going to make them all drunk. And, and I'm sure he's talking more, more than just physical drunkenness, although they had plenty of that. Um, he says in verse 14, I will dash them against each other, both the fathers and the sons together. There's just going to be social turmoil in, in the nation because of their sins. Alright, now, turning a corner, chapter 14, Jeremiah's prayer for mercy on the people. Um, verse 1. Um, that which came as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah in regard to the drought. Now, we talked about the drought a little bit before. Um, and he describes how bad it was. In verse 3, their nobles have sent their servants for water. They have come to the cisterns and found no water. They have returned with their vessels empty. They've been put to shame and humiliated and they cover their heads. It's just terrible. He even talks about the animals later on, about how they're suffering in this terrible drought. Where have we had a drought like this before? Elijah called. Yeah. The days of Elijah. That, uh, and who was the king? Ahab. Yeah. So God's doing this again. And of course, He had predicted this in the book of Deuteronomy. So this is this shouldn't be a big surprise. And in verse 11, um, so the Lord said to me, do not pray for the welfare of this people. When they fast, I am not going to listen to their cry. And when they offer burnt offering and grain offering, I am not going to accept them. Rather, I am going to make an end of them by the sword, famine, and pestilence. But then Jeremiah has an objection. You know, God, God is so harsh against these people. But he... He explains what's happening in verse 13. What's, what's the problem that Jeremiah brings up? False, false prophets. Yeah, the prophets are all saying, you know, this is going to be fine. Um, so he wants God to understand that you know, there's a reason why they're not listening. And the Lord's answer is, the prophets are prophesying falsely to my name. I have neither sent them nor commanded them nor spoken to them. They are prophesying to you a false vision, divination, futility, deception of their own minds. Why are these prophets doing this? Because it pleases the rulers. Yeah. Right? That's what the people want to hear. That's exactly right. That's what the people want to hear. That's why they're doing it. Um, they're, they're earning a living doing this. Where have we had prophets like this before in our stories? Well, Ahab had. Yeah, Ahab had a whole bunch of prophets that tell him, hey, go up to Ramos Gilead, you'll, you'll conquer. <laughs> And the one, the one faithful prophet that tells them the truth gets thrown in jail for it. I mean, there's no incentive to tell the truth. And understand, the same thing happens in our day today. I mean, there are plenty of preachers out there who are preaching what they know people want to hear. In fact, we had one here for a while. Um, 
So then in verse 15, Therefore thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who are prophesying in My name, although it was not I who sent them, yet they keep saying, There will be no sword or famine in this land. By sword and famine those prophets shall meet their end. The people also to whom they are prophesying will be thrown out into the streets to Jerusalem because of the famine and the sword, and there will be no one to bury them, neither them nor their wives nor their sons nor their daughters, for I will pour out their own wickedness on them. And then in verse 19, Jeremiah says, Have you completely rejected Judah? Or have you loathed Zion? Why have you stricken us so that we are beyond healing? We waited for peace, but nothing good came. And for a time of healing, but behold, terror. And verse 21, Do not despise us for your own name's sake. Do not disgrace the throne of your glory. Remember and do not annul your covenant with us. <laughs> what did God just said a few verses ago about praying for these people? Don't pray for them. <laughs> He's not going to listen. But Jeremiah, well, this is valuable. Um, you know, the, the, people, when it, the, the people, whenever Jeremiah prophesied them, they thought he hated them. And, and they did terrible things to him. But look what's going on in his heart. Look what's going on between him and God. He doesn't want these things to happen to people. He loves them and he cares about them. So Jeremiah is kind of getting it both directions. He prays to God and God says, don't pray to me. Don't ask about these people. And then he tells the people, look, if you just repent, it'll be okay. And they, they do terrible things to him. What a, what a miserable life the poor guy's having. Alright, so chapter 15, we already knew this was going to happen, but the Lord refuses to have mercy. Then the Lord said to me, even though Moses and Samuel were to stand before me, my heart would not be with this people. Send them away from my presence and let them go. Can you think of a time when Moses prayed for the people? Yeah. That was a very good Yeah, if you won't, you know, if you're not going to forgive them, then take my name out of your book. Which God wouldn't do, but I'm sure he appreciated the sin of but it says it wouldn't do any good if Moses was here today. I would not listen. Um, verse 4, I will make them an object of horror among all the kingdoms of the earth because of Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, the king of Judah, for what he did in Jerusalem. He was certainly the worst of the kings of Judah. Terrible. Um, and it hadn't been that long ago either. And now look what um, Jeremiah says. Woe to me, my mother, that you have borne me as a man of strife and a man of contention to all the land. I have not lent nor have men lent money to me, yet everyone curses me. <laughs> Why does he mention loaning money or borrowing money? That's the typical way to people make enemies. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah there's, there's not much faster way to make an enemy of someone than to either borrow money and not pay him back or loan him money and he doesn't want to pay you back. Either way. He doesn't like you. Um, and Jeremiah says, I didn't do that. Why, why do people think so terrible of me? Verse 15. You who know, O Lord, remember me. Take notice of me and take vengeance from me on my persecutors. Do not, in view of your patience, take me away. Know that for your sake I endure reproach. Your words were found and I ate them. And your words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart, for I have been called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. And so he's talking about how, you know, I've tried to do what's right. Won't you listen to me? 
And when he says, listen, I mean, he, he means take care of him. He's not, I, don't, I think he's given up at this point that God's going to forgive the people. There's no way. But in verse 18, why has my pain been perpetual, my wound incurable, refusing to be healed? Will you indeed be to me like a deceptive stream with water that is unreliable? He's talking about those, those places they have there that are called wadis or out west. They have these dry creek beds which every so often it rains and they'll get water. But they're deceptive. You go to get a drink of water from them and you might you know, thirst to death. And he says, why have you been like that? Or will you be like that? Um, and here's the Lord's answer, verse 19. If you return, then I will restore you. Before me you will stand. And if you extract the precious from the worthless, you will become my spokesman. They for their part may turn to you, but as for you, you must not turn to them. Then I will make you to this people a fortified wall of bronze. And though they fight against you, they will not prevail over you. For I am with you to save you and deliver you, declares the Lord. So at the beginning of this section, verse 19, it's obvious that there's things even in Jeremiah that need to be corrected. Um, And this is the same way with us. When we have problems with God, problems of faith, um, problems dealing with um, trials. Um, oftentimes there's things that God's, God wants us to learn. And so just like with Jeremiah, if you return, then I will restore you. And, and think about this. Who was worse? Jeremiah or the people he was preaching to? Unquestionably, it was the people he was preaching to. And yet, that didn't mean that he was off the hook and didn't have to pay very serious attention to his heart and his relationship with God. And that's why God is talking to him, if you return, then I will restore you. Alright, chapter 16. Now it gets even worse for Jeremiah. Prohibitions for Jeremiah. Um, in verse 2, what does he tell Jeremiah not to do? Not take a while. Not to have a wife, not to have children. Um, so he's got to do all this by himself. He doesn't have a partner to go through life with, helping him, encouraging him. It's just him and God. But what would have happened if he had not believed God? What would have happened if he had decided, well, I think I'll get married anyway? He'll suffer very, very It would be worse. Yeah. And that and in fact, what God is telling him is a kindness. Because there are worse things to being alone. And, and he's going to see a lot of other people that are married that are going to go through that grief that God had spared him. Now, but now part of this was also as a sign to the people. These things God is telling him were, were done in public and, and God wants the people to know that Jeremiah at least believes the message if nobody else does. So he has some more commandments, and these are going to be very public ones. In verse five, where is he not supposed to go? A house of mourning, in other words, to a funeral or a wake, um, because God has withdrawn His peace from the people. But also, where else? In verse eight, not to a party. Yeah. A house of feasting, which would typically be a wedding feast. Not not the only thing, but he mentions weddings in the next verse. Because the time's going to come very soon 
when people aren't going to be celebrating marriage, they're not going to be having funerals. People are going to die and they'll just lay out on the ground. That It'll be so terrible. And so Jeremiah is supposed to act this out for them in advance. Uh, uh, not just a sermon, but a sermon in, in action. And so then he explains in verse 10, now when you tell this people all these words, they will say to you, for what reason has the Lord declared all this great calamity against us? And what is our iniquity? Or what is our sin which we have committed against the Lord our God? Now you think about that and you wonder, what? But notice the answer at the beginning of verse 11. What's the answer? Well, your forefathers are mentioned Yeah, because your forefathers, people like King Manasseh. And of course they're going to hear that and they're going to think, yeah, okay, they did it, but that's not us. <laughs> but then he goes on, he says, um, in verse 12, you too have done evil even more than your forefathers. <laughs> so he, he does this sort of one-two punch to try to, you know, where, where they're going to start by saying, oh, well, the forefathers doesn't count. You're worse. <laughs> um, oh my. Verse 14. Now, this is interesting, and, and, and this is true of almost every prophet. Although they will say the worst things that are coming, they always predict a blessing to follow at the very end. Verse 14, Therefore, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will no longer be said, as the Lord lives who brought out the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt. That was the greatest deliverance to that date, the deliverance from Egypt. But, as the Lord lives who brought up the sons of Israel from the land of the north and from all the countries where He had banished them. For I will restore them to their own land which I gave to their fathers. What's this a prediction of? The return. Yeah. With Ezra. You know, the, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. That's what he's predicting. So, it, although he tells them it's terrible, he, he wants them to know that God's not finished with them. He is going to restore them and it will be a miraculous restoration. One that they'll... Remember, for centuries to follow. Alright, chapter 17. Trusting in humans versus trusting in the Lord. The sin of Judah is written down with an iron stylus. With a diamond point, it is engraved upon the tablet of their heart and on the horns of their altars. Verse 5. Thus says the Lord, Curses in who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength and whose heart turns away from the Lord. For He will be like a bush in the desert and will not see when prosperity comes, but will live in stony wastes in the wilderness, a land of salt without inhabitant. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is the Lord. For He will be like a tree planted by the water that extends its roots by a stream and will not fear when the heat comes, but its leaves will be green and it will not be anxious in the year of drought nor cease to yield fruit. Where else have we already had this picture of this faithful person being like a tree planted by the water. Huh? Yeah, the very first psalm. Same, same exact idea as this. Almost the same words, in fact. Um, then in verse 9, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways according to the results of his deeds. And then verse 14, this is Jeremiah talking now. 
Heal me, O Lord, and I will be healed. Save me, and I will be saved, for You are my praise. Look, they keep saying to me, where is the Word of the Lord? Let it come now. Can you imagine the gall of these people? When Jeremiah's out there preaching, the day of the Lord is coming. And they're, and they're saying, oh yeah? Oh yeah, let's see it. Bring it on. Yeah, show us. What an attitude. And of course, Jeremiah, he looks like a fool. Everybody thinks he's an idiot. And he's praying to God about this. He says, but as for me, I have not hurried away from being a shepherd after you, nor have I longed for the woeful day. You yourself know that the utterance of my lips was in your presence. He's reminding God. He's, he's asked for these people. He, 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 he cares about them. Then God gives him a new task, which I assume is a result of this prayer to him. In verse 19, Thus, said, thus the Lord said to me, Go and stand in the public gate, through which the kings of Judah come in and go out, as well as in all the gates of Jerusalem. And what's he supposed to tell these people to do in the next couple of verses? Stop working on the Sabbath. Yeah, stop working on the Sabbath. Now, at first glance, this seems like an odd thing to, to mention. I mean, we've already had lists of sins so terrible, unbelievable. I mean, uh, adultery, murder. Um, they were they were burning their own children to, to death and sacrifice to the Baals. Um, deceit, lying. I mean, everything imaginable. And now God picks out of all these things, He picks out one thing, the Sabbath. <laughs> and you look at that and you think, well, that certainly isn't the biggest deal. But it has one advantage. One advantage, and that is that it's very easy to see if you're obeying it or not. These other things, they didn't do it like every week. I mean, they didn't murder someone every week. They didn't commit adultery perhaps every week. Um, and, and when they did, they did it in secret. But with the Sabbath, it was obvious. It was, it was public. And secondly, it's something that no matter what they've been doing in the past, they can change and, and do what's right now. That God's given them this chance. Um, those other things might take a lot longer to know if they've repented. But this, I mean, one week is enough to know if they, if they repented of this one. Either you work on the Sabbath or you're not, and it's pretty obvious because you don't do your work inside your house usually. They're carrying, you know, carrying loads to the city and all this. Did they, so did they do it when Jeremiah told them not to do it? They stiffened their necks. They stiffened their necks, yeah. Um, so just one more evidence that these people are just beyond uh, hope. So verse 27, if you do not listen to me to keep the Sabbath day holy by not carrying a load and coming into the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, then I will kindle a fire at its gates and it will devour the palaces of Jerusalem and not be quenched. Alright, chapter 18. The potter of the clay. Uh, in, this, in this story, God tells Jeremiah to go visit a potter and watch him. And what is it specifically he's supposed to see about the potter? Well, the potter has the authority to shape or, or um, disregard a, an inferior pot. Yeah, he can do what he wants with the clay. That's part of it. But there's something else. Something happened while Jeremiah was watching. He's, he's making a pot and something happened. What happens? Matthew? It's damaged. Yeah, it doesn't work out. If something happens that's not like what he wanted. So what's he do instead? 
Yeah, he makes that clay into something else. He doesn't throw the whole the clay out. Um, you know, he's shaping it. Something happens, but he looks at it and he realizes, oh, okay, I can't make what I originally planned, but you know, just a few little tweaks here and there, and, I, and I've got something else. I guess you know, it's still a perfectly good pot. I can use it. Now, what's the lesson that he's trying to make to the people of Judah? Captivity in Babylon is a potter's tool. Well, yeah, that that's true. It, there's no question that's true. But the the main lesson here is the well, the pot getting marred and the powder changing what it's going to do. You see, the, the people the people of Judah had the same attitude the Jews did in Paul's day, and that is. We're the people of God. God can't reject us. And so God is saying, well, in verse 7, at one moment I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to uproot, to pull down, or destroy it. The potter's planning to do that with them. But what if that nation repents? What's God going to do? He's going to change and make something else out of them. He's not going to destroy them if they've repented. On the other hand, He speaks good about a people. What if they sin? What's He going to do? Then they're going to be rejected. The pot has been marred. So, so this so this parable is not. I mean, although you know we you know we there's popular songs today about you know the potter and the clay, and the the emphasis of the, of the modern songs are generally on God has has total control over us. That's true, but that's not the main point of this parable. The the point of this parable is that. If you will repent, God won't do all the terrible things He's been saying He's going to do. He'll make you out into a good pot. On the other hand, even though He's been saying good things to you for hundreds of years, if you turn if you turn and sin, then the pot is marred, and He's going to have to make something that you don't really want Him to make out of out of you. So that's the potter of the clay. Um, let me see here. What else? Um, then in verse 13, Therefore thus says the Lord, Ask now among the nations, who ever heard the like of this? The virgin of Israel has done a most appalling thing. Um, and the appalling thing is turned away from the living God to serve these dead idols. Um, then in verse 18, they said, Come and let us devise plans against Jeremiah. Surely the law is not going to be lost to the priest, nor counsel of the sage, nor the divine word of the prophet. Come on and let us strike at him with our tongue and let us give no heed to any of his words. It's just doing, his, his preaching is accomplishing nothing and it's just so sad. And so then he prays to God, to give heed to me, O Lord, and listen to what my opponents are saying. Should good be repaid with evil? For they have dug a pit for me. Remember how I stood before you to speak good on their behalf so as to turn away your wrath from them. And it's so sad. I mean, they're really returning evil for good to Jeremiah. That they think if they can just shut Jeremiah up, then hey, nothing of this is going to happen. What what extreme foolishness! Now we have in chapter nineteen we have the broken jar. Um, so we had the potter making a pottery vessel in chapter eighteen, and now what what is Jeremiah supposed to do with this jar? Yeah, smash it. Yeah, this wasn't soft clay anymore. This is all this is baked. And and what does it represent? The calamity that's coming to the Yeah. In verse eleven, thus says the Lord of hosts, just so will I break this people in this city, even as one breaks a potter's vessel which cannot again 
be repaired. Uh, and he goes on about in a similar vein. It's just terrible. Chapter 20. <coughs> persecution by Pasher. Who was Pasher? Yeah, he was the priest in charge. It says the chief officer in the house of the Lord. And what's he do? Yeah, now this is worse than we've had so far. I mean, they've done things, you know, tried to do things against him, but now physically they whip him, put him in the stocks overnight. And does that shut Jeremiah up? No, it gives him a new name. <laughs> yeah. Pasher is not the name the Lord has called you, but rather Magor Misabib, which um, the margin says means terror on every side. And verse 6, And you, Pasher, and all who live in your house will go into captivity. And you will enter Babylon. And there you will die. And there you will be buried. You and all your friends to whom you have falsely prophesied. And now, poor Jeremiah, listen to what he says to God. Oh Lord, You have deceived me and I was deceived. You have overcome me and prevailed. I have become a laughingstock all day long. Everyone mocks me. In verse 9, But if I say I will not remember Him or speak any more in His name, then in my heart it becomes like a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary of holding it and I cannot endure it. <laughs> He's considered, you know, just I just won't preach anymore. But he can't stand it. <laughs> it just, he can't stand it. Verse 11, But the Lord is with me like a dread champion. Therefore my persecutors will stumble and not prevail. They will be utterly ashamed because they have failed. With an everlasting disgrace, they will not be forgotten. Well, so it sounds like he's kind of triumphed. He, he's complained to God. He's come out of it. But now, and, and verse 13, Sing to the Lord, praise the Lord, for He has delivered the souls that you won from the hand of evildoers. And then what does He say in verse 14? David was born. Be yeah, cursed be the day when I was born. What's this sound like? <laughs> hey, Brent? Job. Job, yeah, that's the one I'm thinking of. Job, yeah. You remember after those guys had, those three friends had sat there for seven days without saying anything, and Job started speaking? And what he said was, may the day I was born be cursed. This just sounds identical to it, these verses. And you just have to feel so bad for him because it was terrible what he's going through. Just miserable. Alright, now chapter 21. Now understand, we jump around historically because now we're jumping all the way to the last king here, Zedekiah. But we're going to jump back later. Um, the word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord when King Zedekiah sent to him Pasher the son of Mount Kaijah and Zephaniah the priest the son of Maasai saying, Please inquire of the Lord on our behalf for Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon is warring against us. Perhaps the Lord will deal with us according to all His wonderful acts so that the enemy will withdraw, will withdraw from us. You know, they're remembering all those great victories in the past and said, Pray to God that He'll do that. Did you notice any name in here that struck you a little bit odd to be coming asking a favor of Jeremiah? Pasher. Good grief. But times have changed, haven't they? Sure. Let bygones be bygones. <laughs> and what's the answer? Is God going to do one of His great deeds of victory here? 
That's what the answer is. Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. Yeah. Verse 6, I will strike down the inhabitants of this city, both man and beast. They will die by, of a great pestilence. Verse 8, You also shall say to this people, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. They have a choice. Do you want to live or do you want to die? He who dwells in this city will die by the sword and by famine and by pestilence. But he who goes out and falls away to the Chaldeans who besieges you will live and he will have his own life as booty. Wow. That's how to live. Give up to the enemy and become a slave. <clears throat> Be carried away into captivity. Yep. <laughs> That's how to live. How easy would that be for somebody in Jerusalem to do? Well, it's terrible. It's you first of all have to have a lot of faith in God and Jeremiah. Because this is not the sort of thing you can say, oh, I changed my mind. I'm going to go back. <laughs> but secondly, what are the people of Jerusalem going to think of you if, if they see you headed out that, in that direction? You're a traitor. Yeah, they're not going to allow this. So, you know, you, you have, you're taking your life in your hands to do this. And then he, he has a, a lesson back for Zedekiah. Oh, house of David, thus says the Lord, administer justice every morning and deliver the person who has been robbed from the power of his oppressor, that my wrath may not go forth like fire and burn with none to extinguish it because of the evil of their deeds. He's letting Zedekiah know, you haven't been king. That's the reason this is happening. You haven't done what a king ought to do. And so your people and everyone else is going to suffer for it. Now, chapter 22 is a message to the king, but actually we're going back to previous kings. Um, in fact, I want to... Um, I've got a chart I want to show you to help get the time frame here. Uh, these are all the sons, or in one case, Je Jehoiakim, grandson of Josiah. Everyone of a bad king. And then these are the deportations. Now... These are the major deportations. At the end of the last chapter of Jeremiah, they mentioned a few more, uh, which don't really affect our history. The first one was just Jehoahaz. He was taken prisoner to Egypt. Then in 607, the third year of Jehoiakim, Daniel and some other of the royal family were taken hostage. This was not a big deportation, but of course it affected Daniel a lot. Uh, at the end of Jehoiakim's reign, he, Jehoiakim, and his mother, plus 10,000 people were all taken captive to Babylon. This is when Ezekiel went. And, and the entire book of Ezekiel was written from Babylon where he was captive. And then finally 11 years later, most of the rest, including Zedekiah, were, were taken captive. Um, so you know, at different times along this, in these 20 years or so, um, the, you've got different different perspectives. Um, and, and we get two or three perspectives right here in chapter 22. Um, he tells Jeremiah at the beginning, go down to the house of the king of Judah and there speak this word. And then in verse 10, do not weep for the dead or mourn for him, but weep continually for the one who goes away for he will never return or see his native land. I think he's talking about Josiah here when he says do not weep for the dead. Josiah was dead. Weep for the one who goes away and never returns. This was Jehoahaz, also called Shalom. He was taken prisoner to Egypt. And he mentions his name um, in the next verse, in verse 11. 
Then in verse 13, Woe to him who builds his house without righteousness and his upper rooms without justice, who uses his neighbor's services without pay and does not give him his wages. He's talking about the king here, and I'm pretty sure he's talking about Jehoiakim. He would, he would make the people build his house and then he wouldn't pay him. He'd get away with it because he was a king. He was a big jerk. Um, and so in verse 18, Therefore thus says the Lord in regard to Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, they will not lament for him, alas, my brother, or alas, sister. They will not lament for him, alas, for the master, or alas, for his splendor. He will be buried with a donkey's burial, dragged off and thrown out beyond the gates of Jerusalem. We don't have a historical reference of when this happened. I assume it did, since Jeremiah said it was going to happen. But it happened basically at the end. Jeremiah, Nebuchadnezzar was besieging the city this whole time. And, and apparently Jehoiakim was killed in that siege, dragged out of the city. And then his, his son Jehoiakim took over for just three months and he was taken captive. Um, so in verse 24, he switches now to talk about Jehoiakim, also called Coniah. As I live, declares the Lord, even though Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were a signet ring on my right hand, yet I would pull you off. And I will give you over into the hand of those who are seeking your life, yes, into the hand of those whom you dread, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, into the hand of the Chaldeans. I will hurl you and your mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you will die. Which, of course, is what happened. Um, And then, chapter 23, false shepherds and false prophets. Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture, pasture, declares the Lord. Who does he mean by shepherds here? False prophets. False prophets would be part of it. Rulers. Rulers, the kings, priests. Yeah, all those are involved. False shepherds. But notice in verse 5, this is very interesting, and Jeremiah doesn't do this very much. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. Who's this branch? This is Jesus. That's right. You remember in Isaiah 11, there will come a shoot out of the root of Jesse and a branch will, will spread from, from, from the roots. I don't know the exact quote, but it mentions branch. Different Hebrew word, but it's the same idea. Um, and uh, Jeremiah is going to mention branch again later on in, uh, in this book. Still talking about Jesus, of course. Um, he talks about the false prophets in verse 13. Moreover, among the prophets of Samaria, I saw an offensive thing. They prophesied by Baal and led my people Israel astray. And then in verse 14, the prophets of Jerusalem were doing the same thing and even worse. And so he says in verse 18, but who has stood in the council of the Lord? It's like God has this royal council to decide what He's going to do. Who stood there? That He should see and hear His Word. Who has given heed to His Word and listened? <laughs> Those prophets sure haven't. Um, And let's see. Um, I did, verse 21, I did not send these prophets, but they ran. I did not speak to them, but they prophesied. We've got to quit. Appreciate everyone's help this morning.